Welcome back to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. As a quick warning, this podcast does deal with difficult topics such as domestic abuse, sexual assault, and trauma. So be gracious to yourself as you listen. I'm your host, Hannah, from House of Faith and Freedom. You can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, I am here today with my co-host, Nikki. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with speaker, author, advocate, and survivor, Jennifer Foxworthy. Jennifer is a retired U.S. Navy veteran and is the founder of Inspirationally Speaking and Unstoppable You Ministries. I thought I was like G.I. Jane, I'm busting down stereotyping barriers, I'm flying combat missions in three different wars in my 15 years being air crew. I'm the first in three different Navy squadrons, accolades, awards, you name it. How in the world did I find myself in this situation? So Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. It is an absolute pleasure, Nikki and Hannah. Thank you so much for all that you do to spread God's love and his word through the testimonies of your guests. So it's an honor. Yeah, thank you. We know that everyone has a story. So we would love to start there. Tell us about the journey that led you into the military and eventually into the work that you're doing today and around advocacy and resiliency. Absolutely. So I grew up in York, Pennsylvania. It's a small, big town about 20 miles south of Harrisburg, the capital. And growing up, we were not rich, you know, um, maybe what people would call poverty or slightly middle class. My parents, they were awesome people, but not awesome together. So I grew up in a home of dysfunction and division where my parents separated when I was six and then finally divorced when I was 13. Extramarital affairs, just a lot of negative coping skills and poor decision-making when it came to letting other people into the home, into their lives, which also meant my life. And although I had good grades throughout school, I didn't have the grades needed or I wasn't great in sports to where I could get scholarships. So as I was approaching my 10th grade year in high school, I'm evaluating what am I going to do with my future? Staying in my hometown, that area was not going to serve me well. As I looked around in my neighborhoods were the pimps, the prostitutes, drug addicts, unwed mothers just a lot of dysfunction. And I knew that I had the potential to do great and amazing things, but I also knew if I stuck around my hometown and around the people that were in my circle, I was going to end up being a negative statistic. My parents, they don't have the income to send me to college. And so I started contemplating, well, you know, I do have cousins, relatives that joined the military in various branches. And I was thinking maybe that's the route that I should take. So by 10th grade, I made the decision that I wanted to join the United States Navy and make it a career. So I went to the recruiting station and had my parents with me because obviously I was underage. 
and joined the delayed entry program because I needed to at least be 18 to go off into the military. And so for those two years, it gave me something to do where I was working on military lifestyle, what to know, the ranks, pay grades, marching, physical fitness, all that type of stuff. So in September 1991, and I'm dating myself, after I graduated in 91, joined the United States Navy, and I spent 21.7 years, um, went through the enlisted rank from E1 to E7, E7 being a chief petty officer, and I retired in April 2013. So that's what led me into the military is having that insight as, at a young age that I could do better. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is interesting in your story, and it's certainly not an anomaly, I think it's just maybe something we talk about less frequently, is that you did endure an abusive relationship, but it was while you were still enlisted. It was while you were still in the military. And that, again, that does happen in the military like quite frequently. But it's I, I feel like it's even more taboo to talk about there than it is in the general culture. So can you get in a little bit into how you got into that relationship and what it was like to be not only a woman in the military, but then a woman undergoing abuse in the military system? Yes. So growing up in the time frame that I did, being dark skinned with full lips, kinky hair was not considered attractive. So it was common, unfortunately, for different ethnicities to uh, point out these features. Then when I was in high school, I had three Black young boys point out these very features that I became uncomfortable about. It was like a bullying every day going into this one class. And I couldn't understand, especially being in high school, of how can someone who looks like me point out the very same features that they have? You know, I could look like their mother. I, I couldn't understand it, and I didn't have anyone to help me process that. So if I wasn't attractive to Caucasians or Asians or Hispanics or whoever, and now people who look like me point out these features, I'm like, I must be the ugliest thing walking the face of the earth. So anytime that I did get attention from a guy, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he thinks I'm beautiful. But when in fact, they're just running their game and I'm just another notch. So that's what led me to a lot of poor relationships in my teens and 20s. And I had low self-esteem. I was smart. I was funny. But I wasn't the one that, you know, young guys went for. And if they did, they were trying to get their desires met. So unfortunately, with low self-esteem, low self-worth comes looking for love and acceptance in all the wrong places. And then connecting to the ex-boyfriend. So it was service member on service member. He didn't have a neon sign on his forehead that says, hey, you know, I'm going to whip on you. You're going to be the sixth person that I've abused. You know, how about that date? You want to go to the movies and watch Sleeping with the Enemy? You know, it doesn't happen like that. Right. And maybe I had a sign on my forehead that says, hey, I got low self-esteem. Treat me anyway. You know, it's amazing what is projected. 
But yeah, I stayed in that relationship for five and a half years. The military itself is male dominated. And then the environment that I was in was the aviation field, which is Caucasian male dominated. So I stood out where I was trying to fit in because I fixed electronics on the airplane and I was in that elite group as a naval air crewman. So I flew in the airplane and it was my job as an in-flight technician to fix the mission equipment so that we can continue to do the mission without having to go back to the base on land and have our ground crew fix it. Many times there was a crew of 18 and I was the only female and the only minority. So you can imagine what it's like, what I might have experienced. So I often tell people when I speak that as a naval air crewman, you go through a lot of elite training, swimming, you learning if you're ever captured, how to survive off the land. Due to my elite training as a naval air crewman, I was better prepared to be a prisoner of war than to deal with domestic violence. And I want your listeners to truly understand that's a profound statement. And it's because we don't talk about domestic violence enough, and especially in the military. You And a woman, you can't look weak. You have a lot of men that already don't want you there. And then to be in an elite group or in a, an environment where you stand out, I suffered in silence. Yeah. And I think you bring up, like you said, a really profound point, which is the the concepts of abuse, the signs of abuse. These aren't things that are part of our um, culture to talk about. They're things that are very much kept silent or like that's part of the home. So you just keep what's at home at home or what's in your relationship in your relationship. And then you had this extra challenge around the fact that like you were pretty BA (laughs) and I feel like there's an element and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I feel like there's this element of like, I would never be the person to fall prey to that. Like you think that you would stand up for yourself and that adds this like gag to you about not feeling like you can talk about it because there's an extra layer of shame of like, I can handle this and also like a denial of well, it, you know, maybe it's not abuse yet because I wouldn't put up with being treated crappy. You are so on point. When I was growing up, I had family members and neighbors that were in abusive relationships. And I told myself I would never let anybody hit me, harm me, no way. And in my mind, because there was an education or anyone really outwardly talking about it, especially in the Black culture, I'm thinking it's just physical and that it happened to weak, poor women. But I'm like, I'm smart. I'm educated. I'm going into the military. I'm like G.I. Jane. But I didn't realize that domestic violence comes in so many forms. And your narcissist, they're really going to start out with that emotional and mental abuse to see how far they can go. And then they start implementing the physical And that's exactly what I experienced. And because I was looking for love and acceptance, it was a matter of how much was I willing to take because he says he loves me. He professes he loves me. We have great times, 
that's what I'll hold on to. And if I love him a little bit harder and stronger, he'll change his ways and he'll just outright love me the way I truly want. And that was my mindset. But again, it happened so gradually. And even within the first six months of my last abusive relationship, I had thought I was pregnant because I had missed my cycle. I didn't realize that stress could cause a missed menstrual cycle. Um, I didn't equate it to that. And when he came over to my apartment and I told him the possibility, he hauled off and punched me in my stomach. And I was like, oh my goodness. And you can imagine, you know, what happened from there. You know, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again. I don't know what came over me. And before I knew it, I had consented to completing a three-phase cycle of domestic violence because we had makeup sex. So now we were on the honeymoon phase. Right. And it does work in a cycle like that. I appreciate you saying that it's so gradual. And of course you wouldn't put up with this or that, you know? Of course not. You wouldn't allow someone to hit you or you wouldn't allow. So if you don't mind, prior to being punched like that, which I can't, it's so hard to even speak it. What was some of the gradual occurrences prior? I mean, do you have some examples? Absolutely. And what I want to mention is that domestic violence, by definition, is a pattern of behaviors of one person having control over another. So he was a short stature, about 5'8". When you have someone who has been short all their life, they probably got picked on when they were kids. And so he had this machismo mindset of domination. And so oftentimes he would try to wrestle me and hold me down to show his domination over me, where I'm working up a sweat trying to get him off of me. So it was just things like that. He, uh, Our mutual friend that introduced us, she was well endowed, and he would make fun of her body type and then laugh about it. And in my mind, I'm like, that's inappropriate, but I didn't speak up. And she would be like, oh, stop it, and trying to defend herself. But that is a telltale sign for anyone to just constantly do a barrage of insults against someone's weight or what their body looks like. So those are just a few things in the very beginning. I think you bring up a good point. You said this earlier, and I liked how you phrased it, um, talking about how you don't see those things in the beginning and they, you know, they slowly escalate. It's like you're, it's a moving target. Like they are constantly upping the ante a little bit. So like the things that you'll put up with also grow like along with their escalation is how much you're putting up with it because, because you've right. more like adjusted the things that are already happening in the relationship. And as those become normal, the things that are outrageous have to grow more and more outrageous before they ding a bell in your head to be like, huh, maybe that's not right. But even at that moment, you know, people who maybe haven't experienced abuse before, something that's really hard to understand is that a, a lot of individuals who are abusive also... Are, are great at being like 
victims. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you also mm-hmm. feel the need to sort of save them. Right. You know, right. they'll fall back on a tragedy in their past or they're growing up or they're whatever. And they'll be like, you know, you can help me be better. And that's mm-hmm. like catnip to people who are independent and who have carved out mm-hmm. a good life for themselves. They're like, you're, mm-hmm. you're right. I can help you. I can be the stable one in this relationship. Mm-hmm. And without realizing like this is actually a tactical move by them to to get you to continue to stay longer and to have pity and empathy for them and to excuse all the behaviors that are getting worse and worse and worse over time. Absolutely. So in my situation, I did not see the pattern because there wasn't one, so to speak. It wasn't like, okay, on Friday, he's going to come home from work He's going to drink all weekend and I'm going to experience abuse all weekend long. It wasn't like that. If we had an episode, it could be a couple weeks, maybe even a month before I recognized that something was happening. So that's why it was very gradual and it wasn't a pattern that I could really hone in on. And again, uh, there was a lack of education around this topic. I mean, the military, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So the Fleet and Family Support Center, they would have this training for us military, us veterans and the civilians. But training was put in a way that the services were more for the significant other or the spouses and not the actual veteran. Like we are the perpetrators and not the victim. So in my mind, This doesn't apply to me. So there were so many things that failed in order to bring light to the issue. I didn't think it applied. I thought I was like G.I. Jane. I'm busting down stereotyping barriers. I'm flying combat missions in three different wars in my 15 years being air crew. I'm, you know, the first in three different Navy squadrons accolades, awards, you name it. How in the world did I find myself in this situation? And I was holding on to the good times. And there was a lot of great times that made me love him even more. And that's what as victims, you know, we hold on to are those good times. And again, I didn't recognize the pattern because it wasn't this day, this will happen. And on this day, yeah, it was really hard for me to recognize. And this is part of why terminology that we use is so important and the way that we teach and talk about abuse. Because when we say things like a pattern of abuse, you do tend to think a very predictable pattern. But I've really been trying to change at least the language that I'm using when I talk about this a little bit more to be like, think about taking a really wide angle lens to your relationship, like zoom way, way, way out. And when you look at the relationship over the course of however long you've been together, what does that look like? What are the ups and downs of that? And how far down are the downs? You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just how high are the highs, it's how low are the lows. And what do those look like? And are you seeing those types of behaviors, you know, occurring more frequently or repeating even when they're painful or harmful or there were apologies for them in the past? And so sort of getting out of that mentality of thinking this is going to be a perfectly predictable cycle and instead being like, okay, yeah, there's this ongoing thing or these ongoing behaviors that are controlling 
that are dominating that aren't okay. And that's not going away over time. They still happen. Those lows are still happening. And I'm I'm curious, especially as you were saying, like there were all these barriers to realizing what you were going through and all these barriers around getting your help. So I have two questions for you. The first is how do you feel like God provided, sustained, and protected you throughout those five and a half years that you were with your abusive ex? And then also how how did you start realizing what was happening and being like, okay, yeah, this this isn't okay. I think this might be abusive. It needs to end. So great question. So to your first question, I was surrounded by some amazing friends. I am a super extrovert and I get energy off of being around people. So even though the home environment was, you know, dysfunctional, when I would go to work or go out to different events with people, I would lose myself with them, you know, and they had no idea. Nobody knew I was in this five and a half a year abusive relationship because I put a smile on my face. So when I was around my friends, that built me up. So I praise God for those collection of people who were just amazing. Um, God also sustained me. And it's interesting, it wasn't because of my abusive relationship, but because of the pushback I was experiencing professional. So I was experiencing professional bullying, so to speak, or professional abuse by my leaders because they were not ready for a minority and a woman coming into their workspace who passed all the training that they did in flying in airplanes and fixing electronics. So there was many times I thought of suicide. I contemplated suicide. I got tired of trying to fit in where I stood out and should belong. In my mind, we're one fight, one team, and I couldn't understand the pushback. So praise God, he always threw me a life preserver where I reached out for help and explained to a coworker what I was experiencing, and they were able to stop what they were doing to get me the help that I needed. So through it all, God was there. I've been always in a believer I grew up Catholic, um, but then after grade school, I wasn't practicing. I didn't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I was that type of person on a Sunday when they would like, okay, now open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm flipping through the Bible. And, you know, when you stand up, when you have it, I'm still sitting down. And then I end up standing up, faking it like I got it. Amen. But his hands have been on me, you know, throughout my life. And I look back at it now. And I just want to be a living testimony And that's why I'm grateful for Christian programs like this to be able to share and encourage believers that he doesn't shield us from bad things happening, but he walks with us so that we can go through it and we come out even better. So to answer that, and your second question was, how did I get out? So coming into 2006 and I'm like, you know what, I can't continue to do this any longer. He's dangling the carrot, you know, of marriage in front of me, but then yanks it back. And I so wanted to just 
be somebody's wife and have an honest relationship and have children. But praise God for unanswered prayers. He knows best because that would have been harder had we been married and had we had children trying to get out of that abusive relationship. I was loyal to a fault. What propelled me to get out of that relationship is that I suspected him of cheating. So while he was on a deployment, he was cheating with one of his junior sailors. And when they came home, his behavior, it really ramped up to where you've been away for six to nine months and there's no intimacy. There's no affection there. It's in even the name calling ramping up and turning the lights off when I'm trying to study for the chief's exam, looking at me directly and say, damn, you're ugly. You know, just those type of hurtful things, him drinking more alcohol, staying out late, showing up in the morning. And I'm like, how did you get home? I was supposed to be your designated driver. So, you know, I'm crying myself to sleep. I'm listening to a lot of Mary J. Blige songs. And I started doing that self-talk. It's either going to be you or me. And I know now that something like that had to have taken place in order for me to get my senses and move forward because I was loyal to a fault. Had it not been for me suspecting him of cheating, I would have stayed in that relationship because, again, I was holding on to the good times and thought that I could fix him. I could love him to where he loves me as well. And um, so one day, as I was getting ready for work, I'm looking in the mirror in the bathroom and I'm like in tears and I'm like, God, I don't know what to do, but I know that this is not, it's not where it's at, but I don't know what to do because we had six months left on the place that we were renting and I didn't want to lose the deposit. And so God just mapped it out in my mind so meticulously, I couldn't even backpedal. It was as if you look at the Looney Tunes shows where you got the light bulb that comes over the head. That's exactly the situation. Like, I know what to do now. So I went to the management office and told the two ladies what I was experiencing. And without hesitation, they believed me. And I told them that I didn't want to lose the deposit. I didn't know what to do or where to go. And they said, well, we have apartments that we don't always list. We hold back for whatever reason. We have a place that we think you would like, and it's empty and available to move in. The rent is $700, but for you, because you've been a great tenant for all these years, we'll lower it to $600. And that deposit that you're worried about losing, you can put that on the new place. I said, Lord Jesus. They got up out of their seats. They showed me the apartment. I loved it. It was not right near the water in the downtown area where I was stationed at. And then that's when I started making my plans where I told family and friends what I was experiencing and that I was breaking up with him and that I was moving. And uh, I think maybe he was on a mini deployment and uh, I told him, we're done. And uh, of course, you know, he was having sleepless nights and crying and this, this and that. And he even tried to propose to me with no ring 
tried to lie and said that it's being cleaned. And I'm like, Mm-mm, I'm done. My mind is made up. All my friends, when it was moving day, they packed me up. It was just extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. So again, God's hands. And he had my Boaz right there waiting. You know, it was my husband. Uh, but at the time we were co-workers working in the same building. And here in May 19th, we will celebrate 16 years of marriage. Oh, that is remarkable. Wow. Oh, I just, I got to sit there a second <laughs> in this trajectory. Oh, only God, right? Only God. Only God. And like you were saying, you know, you were shaped in this way of you were a loyal person. You knew nothing of quitting. So your perseverance levels are high. And you know what? I'm going to exercise my loyalty, perseverance levels. And, you know, we're just going to move forward and overcome. And it's crazy in the midst of that. Our voices can become so small and quiet. And I just love how God just brought you to that final spot of no. I'm saying no, no more. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And I even told him when he tried to propose, I was like, if you treated me like this as a girlfriend, what would it be like as a wife? And I said, you know what? I know you're lying. You're seeing somebody. Um, I hope you have a wonderful life with her. And I hope you treat her better than what you treated me. Mm-hmm. And then come to find out my suspicions were accurate. And they tried to start a relationship and he got her pregnant and hurried up and married her because he was jeopardizing his career, but it didn't last long. And I have a quote that we must be mindful that the grass is not always greener on the other side. It could be artificial turf. So that's what she got. She got artificial turf because she thought, oh my He's doing this and he's doing that and look how he's dressed. But she didn't recognize the woman that was dressing him because I experienced financial abuse as well. And what I also want to share is during this five and a half year relationship, I have poor coping skills to where both of us enjoy gambling, going to casinos. He would go off, spend his money and then come to me looking for more. But those slot machines gave me an opportunity to just zone in and just watch those reels run round and round. And I'm just constantly feeding it because I had that military mindset of go big or go home. So I'm feeding the machine. And here I'm not only experiencing financial abuse, but I'm getting myself further and further in debt. And then being so numb, it was absolutely crazy the negative coping skills that I had. And I don't think you're the only person who goes through something like that, where when we have trauma or when we're in a situation that feels so out of control, we're looking for something to help us deal with that reality. And this is actually going to lead us into sort of one of my next questions for you, which is, I think that the church sometimes can get caught up on looking at those poor coping skills that someone may have developed in order to deal with an abusive situation and that's the first thing they're going to like attack or judge instead of going what made you get to this point where you were using this coping mechanism 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what you wish churches could understand or know about domestic violence and about how that looks and about how people coming out of it are complicated and messy, just like every human being is, and and how we should maybe begin approaching them as faith communities? I would love for our faith-based leaders to be honest with themselves. Um, it's, it's about having these tough conversations and knowing the statistics. So when a pastor is standing on his pulpit and he's looking out on the congregation, if he was aware that one in four women and one in seven men are experiencing this hurt, and if he did a visual count, and had you know every fourth woman stand up, every seventh man stand up, that would be an indicator of how many people in their church are experiencing this pattern that is hard to recognize. So how do we handle this? You have to be honest and say, I know that this is happening. I know that many of you may be experiencing or have experienced it, whether you did, you currently are, or you will, let me tell you what God, how he feels about it. And that even if you're married, God wouldn't want his beautiful creation to be destroyed from the inside out. If you have children that are growing up in this dysfunctional environment and you got the Sunday attire on and you look so beautiful in church, but then you go home and it's so messy, Mm -hmm. that child is going to end up being one of four things, the victim, the abuser, both, or commitment phobic. And I know many people in all the segments. So if we keep it real and we address this and then provide resources, I think the church would be better off. And oh, by the way, it intersects with human trafficking. Oh, by the way, it intersects with poor health. And by the way, it intersects with homelessness. It has many intersections. So that's what I would love for Christians, our church, our faith-based leaders. Have the conversation, be real, and there's scripture that goes with it. Yes, we should submit, but he also encourages the man, treat the woman as Christ loves the church. Christ died for the church. Yeah, and I think... Something that really caught my attention, actually, I feel like it was one of the first things I noticed about the work that you do now, is that you have this ministry that's called Unstoppable You Ministries, and you really deal with that intersection of multiple different issues that someone might have. And this is like a personal passion of mine, the fact that we need to talk more about intersectionality. Like, People do not exist in a silo and their problems don't exist in a silo. So it's not like every single time you're going to have one person who's dealing with depression and one person who's dealing with an eating disorder, one person who's dealing with an addiction and one who's dealing with abuse. Like they could very likely have all of those things happening at one time. And we really have a tendency, even as professional agencies, not just ministries, but like as nonprofits, as government agencies, we deal with one issue. And then we're like, I don't know, I can't help you with those other things. But they're all impacting each other. They're all compounding on one another. 
And you really take a holistic look at people and go, all right, the reality is they're struggling with all of these things. So how do we meet them there? How do we meet them exactly where they're at right now with the struggles they have right now and try to address that? So I'm getting ahead of myself, but tell us a little bit about the start of Unstoppable You and like how that idea and passion came into your mind and then what you guys are doing now out in the community and around actually around the country. Yep. Unstoppable You Ministries, it started out of necessity. So when I retired from the Navy, I started my for-profit business because I knew I wanted to be a motivational speaker and then I became a published author. So in 2013, started inspirationally speaking LLC and was really hitting the pavement, trying to make a name and a brand for myself. And I published Tomorrow My Sunshine Will Come, Memoirs of Women Who Survived Domestic Violence in 2014, ebook and paperback. Because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. I shouldn't be held bound by the guilt and shame. And I want people to know they're not alone. And it and it's, it was supposed to be a book of just me, but it ended up being a collection of memoirs of friends that shared their story with me. So, and then God had called me to do the Unstoppable You Women's Conference. That kicked off November 2013. Again, it wasn't something that I set out to do, but God, he gets his way. Then... I was given the opportunity to do a television show. So I I came up with the name Living Unshackled on Purpose. And I had a 2.3 million household reach. It actually aired on television. I would purchase paid programming slots. I would come before Joyce Myers or, you know, strategically positioning myself. Uh, Dish Network, Verizon Fios, Comcast, you know, anybody that had those providers, they could find my show on TV. But all of this was happening under my for-profit business. And mind you, I'm newly retired. My paycheck has been reduced significantly. And I was coming under financial strain with this conference and all these things. And I didn't realize that I was doing nonprofit causes under a for-profit business. You don't know what you don't know, especially they don't really teach you these things in the military. So... As the conference is growing and getting bigger and the TV show and everything else, I'm financially struggling. It happened to be in 2017. I was like, I don't want my for-profit to be an expensive hobby. Something has to give. And for two years, when people were telling me, Jennifer, you need to start a nonprofit, I was like, you're out of your mind. I don't want to do a nonprofit. I can barely run my own for-profit business. But again, God got his way. And so that's when Unstoppable You Ministries started. And based on me being a domestic violence survivor, we knew that would be a component. One of my conferences, I started having someone speak on human trafficking because I'm thinking human trafficking just happens overseas. And this happened to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I partnered with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department and had one of their detectives give a presentation. And when she did, it blew my mind. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is happening right on U.S. soil in these ways. And I was like, wow. I knew from then on, I wanted someone to give a human trafficking presentation at every conference. So then that element was put into our mission. And then 
with the conferences, we would partner with homeless shelters and they would want to do a fashion makeover where we would select two to three or four women or men and they would get a head to toe makeover. So then uh, the homeless portion was put into mission. And before I know it, I'm like, okay, we are providing services to domestic violence, human trafficking, and homelessness. And the more I educated in these areas, I was like, oh my goodness, one person can experience all three. And that's what we do. We provide services, whether emergency stays in hotel gas cards, food cards. If they're coming out of homelessness, we're helping them with household goods, uh, application fees. We've helped three people get dentures because that affects the self-esteem. We refer people to different agencies. I've sat in court to be an emotional support for people who have to do a protection order against their abusers. We've hosted opioid epidemic awareness workshops because opioids are one of the the narcotics that traffickers use to control their victims. We've hosted domestic violence awareness events. We've hosted right now, which is very popular, our safety and self-defense workshops where we've collaborated with a martial arts instructor and he is absolutely amazing. He provides information on how to be more vigilant be more prepared, avoid these horrible things from happening, and putting a plan in place. So for example, having a code word. Um, when you and your family members go to a restaurant, that one person is sitting with their back to the wall and they're facing the exits, and that code word is established. That way, if something happens, if that code word is used, Everybody gets up and they leave towards that designated exit. They don't ask questions or anything like that. Um, Parking differently. Where someone wants to sexually harm me, assault me, or kidnap me or whatever, and if I just pull into that first parking spot and there's a barrier or another car there, all they have to do is pull up behind me and it makes it harder to leave. Where if I back in or I pull all the way through, now I'm facing the aisle and someone's trying to mean me harm, I can just pull one out. So just those type of things, we're empowering the community to think differently. We host human trafficking awareness events where there's a Christian documentary called Blind Eyes Opened, and it is a direct call to the body of Christ. And I made friends with the executive producer and his wife, um, Mr. Jeffrey Rogers and his wife, Carrie. They are phenomenal people. And it's uh, Blind Eyes Open, The Truth About Sex Trafficking in America. And so I purchased a public license and it's just been extraordinary. I think I've hosted this documentary probably about six times now. And I'm about to host it for high school students at a private Christian school. So I'm excited about that. Um, So those are just a few things that Unstoppable You Ministry that we do. We have the Unstoppable You Conference. It's on tour, has been on tour since 2013. Last November, we wrapped up in my hometown, the 25th Unstoppable You Conference in nine years. And at that time, 10 different states. We're 
preparing for our 26th conference in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. So this year, 2023, we'll be on a three-state tour. We do a myriad of things, but we love the education and training portion. If I can educate the community, the churches, the hospitals, you name it, on what domestic violence is or human trafficking, then let's be proactive to where we can prevent these issues happening. I don't want somebody having to come to Unstoppable You Ministries in a crisis. That's after the fact. But if I can empower them and give them the resources and education of what to look for and what it is, that's half the battle right there. So that's the premise of Unstoppable You Ministries. It's just phenomenal. It is incredible the number of things that you guys are doing. And so I think this is this is a this is gonna be a nice question to sort of leave off with is obviously Unstoppable You has some really incredible resources and and I'll directly link to that in the show notes as well as the Blind Eyes Open documentary and um and your book. But do you have any additional resources that you think our listeners might find encouraging or helpful if they are walking through some form of abuse or trauma in their lives right now? Uh, Yes. So Unstoppable You Ministries, we actually have a resource page and it is a one-stop shop. We have resources dealing with sexual abuse, runaway children, human trafficking, domestic violence. We have resources for veterans, even for drug addiction or uh, addiction recovery. You name it, it's a one-stop shop. So we want to send everyone to our website to see this resource page. In addition, I've been featured in a documentary by Fox 43 called Invisible Cage dealing with human trafficking in central Pennsylvania. I've been featured on CBS uh, 27 and ABC 21. I might have those numbers backwards. I think ABC 27 and CBS 21 been featured on their shows in different segments. So again, our our website is a one-stop shop. You'll see some Living Unshackled on Purpose, our television show that I had. And then they can branch off from there as far as what they want to do. But again, Unstoppable You Ministries, that website. Excellent. Thank you for putting Mm -hmm. together a resource that's so comprehensive and can really be this great jumping off point into getting assistance in the areas that you need it. Um, Any last words before we sign off, Jennifer? I just want to encourage your uh, listeners that believe God when he says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and to not stay in a relationship longer than necessary. And we do understand that it takes six to seven times for someone who's in an abusive relationship to recognize it and finally get the gumption to leave. Again, I'm I'm a living testimony, but I was able to get out of it. And then once you get out of it, it's time to heal. And that journey could look like acknowledging what you experience. Because I have a quote that denial feeds dysfunction. And then restoring your broken soul. You've been put down for so long. Now it's time to restore. And then ultimately forgiving. I like to use the quote by Nelson Mandela. He said that resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it kills your enemy. So if I can offer any advice, 
if you're in any type of poor relationship, establish boundaries, healthy boundaries with yourself and others, and stop drinking the poison. Forgiveness is key. It's not so much for the person that offended you, but for you yourself to be free from the toxic thoughts and behaviors and feelings that come with unforgiveness. And God tells us, no, not one of us are good. So we all fall short of the glory, but praise God for his salvation, his grace, his mercy, his love. It's ever enduring. We just have to surrender and recognize that we are his beautiful creations. We should not hurt others. We should not allow anyone to hurt us as well. And we should recognize our value. And if I can be a resource in any way, whether to speak or offer a word of encouragement, that's what I hope to do. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I couldn't have said it better myself. And it has just been such a pleasure to sit and soak in some of your wisdom and hear your story and just to have your experiences as another way of putting language for our listeners who may be struggling to understand some of what they're going through. So thank you so much for being with us, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Hannah and Nikki. You ladies are phenomenal. You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary, House to Hearts. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom with your host, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website at houseoffaithandfreedom.org.